And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition on Saturday night, March 5th, I believe, uh, to the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hogan. For the next three hours, I'm going to bring you a continuing story, which is really unbelievable. About uh, a little over two months ago, almost now three months, uh, December, January, February, it's uh, first week in March, we began a series of remarkable experiments transmitting radio signals, ordinary uh, EM radio transmissions, electromagnetic radiation, uh, first on a very large antenna with a very large effective power of something like half a million watts and now with a much smaller handheld device, and I'll explain why we're doing that in a minute. And we sent our first test transmissions in the direction of this object that came zipping through the solar system several years ago in October of 2017, an object that NASA named a Muamua, which kind of generally means uh, first scout uh, going before, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, during its quick passage through the solar system, it was discovered very early on by tracking the orbit that it was on what's called a hyperbolic trajectory. It had uh, never been here before. It entered the solar system at excess of what's called escape velocity, meaning it was uh, falling faster toward the sun than if it had been, uh, you know, sitting still and just had uh, kind of wandered into the gravitational influence in the Milky Way. And it made a sharp right-hand turn and departed in the direction of Pegasus at roughly 90 degrees, uh, again, in excess of escape velocity from the sun, never to return. So in December of 2021, around December 4th, it was this sliver in the dark, about two and a half billion miles away, utterly mysterious, and there was a serious groundswell of discussion in the mainstream astronomical community following our discussion here on the other side of midnight several weeks before that a muamua was not a natural object. Uh, astronomers tried to fit it into several categories. Uh, first, it was termed a comet, then when no cometary uh, signatures like a coma or a tail were detected, it was called an asteroid. And then when uh, anomalous motions were detected, it was shifted back in the mainstream to a cometary object. But actually, there were several mainstream astronomers following our, our lead, which stated very bluntly that it was potentially an interstellar active artificial probe um, of a class basically uh, devised by a Stanford engineer back in the 1960s named uh, Robert Bracewell. A Bracewell probe in uh, Bracewell's model was an artificial object created by some distant extraterrestrial civilization that instead of sending radio signals into its section of the galaxy would create a whole series of very sophisticated robotic probes, AI probes, 
run by artificial intelligence, and they would dispatch them on trajectories to their nearest star systems. And even if it took them centuries at the sublight speeds, you know, rocket technology, obsolete rockets, they would eventually wind up in this distant solar system. They would go into orbit and they would lie in wait. They would orbit quietly waiting for a potential indication of intelligence in that particular star system. And the idea behind Bracewell's model that a culture would create hundreds of these, or maybe even a thousand or more, and send them in all directions to hang out in the star's globe, you know, several hundred light years around them, and they would simply wait for the probe to pick up radio signals indicative of a high-technology civilization capable of uh, manipulating the electromagnetic spectrum with all the associated technologies that go into creating radio, certainly radio that can be heard across interstellar distances. And uh, they would then send signals from an orbit around the star back to the planet or, and the culture that was sending radio. And thereby the model was that uh, there would be a two-way communication established between the indigenous civilization, the artificial probe that had come from a distant solar system, and the probe would then record a whole bunch of these transmissions and then send it back to its home world, its home solar system, hundreds or maybe a thousand or more light years distant. That was the model. So when Oumuamua came zipping through the solar system, there were some people, us uh, kind of forefront, who said because of the characteristics of its trajectory, the fact that if you look in detail at the numbers attached to its swift hyperbolic orbit around the sun, including its diving into the solar system at 32 degrees, all of those numbers had over and over again things like phi, 19.5, etc., etc. So to our mind, the geometry of the orbit itself was a hallmark of its artificiality. Uh, for other reasons, totally separate reasons, uh, Abby Loeb at Harvard and several others also got the idea and began to promulgate it that this thing was an artificial probe. Well, the fat was in the fire or the cat among the pigeons or whatever other cliche you might want to drag out of the closet because since this really was the first confirmed interstellar visitor by mainstream astronomy, by mainstream science, regardless of its origins, there was a great deal of interest in its composition, where it came from, and there have been all kinds of efforts to try to track the trajectory back to figure out where it came from. What's really weird is that when you do that, it turns out that the solar system literally walked up on, if you can think of hundreds of miles per second orbiting around the center of the galaxy as walking, it literally walked up on this object which was sitting almost motionless relative to the surrounding stars, which in and of itself is really kind of weird, almost like someone had put it in our path, like putting a buoy 
on the course of a giant ocean liner in the middle of the dark Atlantic and waiting for the two objects to to meet. Um, so Oumuamua passed the test of being interstellar. It certainly passed some of the tests of being artificial. But during the time that it came whipping around the sun, the only public effort that we could track down was an effort by, oddly enough, a Russian oligarch who lives in Northern California and who has a few billion extra dollars to kind of uh, spend on whatever he wants to. And he funded a week of listening time at one of the world's premier radio observatories in Greenbank, West Virginia, uh, long about December. And the, the spec- specifications of the, of the program were that if something as small as a cell phone or a smartphone had been broadcasting from a muamua at its distance from Earth at that time, which was uh, well beyond the orbit of Mars and approaching the orbit of Jupiter. I mean, it was really moving fast. Radio telescope listening session over about a week, several sessions, would have picked up the signal. Nothing was heard, or so we have been told. What I found kind of curious if there was serious interest in the artificiality model, is that no one under the rubric of Bracewell's original idea, which was that such a probe would only respond if it got a message, if it got signals, if someone actually tried to talk to it, no one that I'm aware of, either the deep state, the military, the mainstream international astronomical community, amateurs, nobody, tried to communicate with the Muamua as it was zipping past the Earth and departing into the far distant dark. And I wonder why, even now, that nobody thought to give it a call. So, long around last December, early, uh, late November, early December, we crafted a enterprise mission effort on the part of ourselves and two very interesting researchers, David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett. Jimmy had the antenna, David had the codes, and so we all agreed that what we would do is to craft a few-minute-long message comprised of sacred geometry, sacred frequencies, uh, fundamental constants, uh, some scanned images like pictograms, kind of like what the Arecibo Observatory sent many years ago under the aegis of Frank Drake and uh, Carl Sagan. And we would beam it using Blanchett's antenna in northern Arizona uh, periodically during uh, the other side of midnight on a Saturday night on February 4th uh, in the direction of Muamua, and we would see what happened if anybody answered the call. Well, obviously, what's happened since has kind of obviated the ancient kind of archaic Bracewell probe model because no sooner had Blanchett started transmitting. And remember, given that Oumuamua was something like two and a half billion miles away beyond the orbit of Neptune um, at that time on that night and receding at uh, you know tens of miles per second, even as we transmitted, uh, David and I and a few others calculated 
that it would take almost four hours at the speed of light, the speed of normal radio transmissions for our signal to get to Oumuamua. And then, of course, you start the stopwatch running, and it takes, if they answered instantly, which likely they would not, um, it would take four hours for the information for a return radio signal to get back. That was the minimum time. Actually, if you figure in different languages, decoding, figuring out the frequencies, deciding what to say, whether to respond, all of those things could have added even more hours, if not days, to the total round-trip time. Well, things happened very quickly and very dramatically and totally through the sublight or speed of light model into the uh, wastebasket. Because about two minutes after Blanchett began sending the signals, over the course of the next several hours, something like six spacecraft, and the reason we know they're spacecraft is because of their behavior and their geometry. He was able to zoom in on the low-light level television camera he had mounted and was recording uh, images, video from during the transmission sequence. Over the next several hours, six different spacecraft with different geometries popped into and then disappeared out of normal 3D space directly above the antenna, photobombing literally that patch of sky where the antenna was directed with a muamua two and a half billion miles away beyond it in the dark. Six of them. And they would come on, they'd hang out for a moment, a few frames, and they disappear. They didn't track across the sky. They didn't mimic airplanes. They literally popped into 3D space and then disappeared like they had beamed in and out to another dimension, which one could conventionally call hyperspace. And it all happened in two minutes after he started the transmission. Now, we can interpret this, as we will have some fun doing tonight, in a variety of ways. The most interesting and the least uh, hypothesis-laden idea is that the Earth is kind of surrounded by a whole bunch of extraterrestrial civilizations, and they're a lot closer uh, to us than the Muamua. In fact, uh, they're hanging out somewhere between us and the moon. It takes about one and a quarter light seconds to get a signal to the moon and back another one and a quarter seconds. So in two minutes, they could have been within a sphere, uh, two light minutes in radius. The sun is eight light minutes away, give or take. So they could have been like one eighth of the distance to the sun. And since the sun is 93 million miles away, in other words, they could have been something like 10 million miles out there and went, whoa, who is transmitting tonight with a very powerful signal? Let's go over and take a look. That's the really dumb, simple, stupid model. There are much more interesting but more complicated hypotheses to explain uh, what happened that first night. On the radios, remember, we were also listening for return signals on the radio on the two frequencies, the two sacred frequencies, the two special hyperdimensional frequencies we had chosen to transmit on, which was 144.1 megahertz, that's million cycles per second, 
and 432 megahertz million cycles per second. Well, what was very curious is that after Blanchett stopped transmitting, he switched his antenna system to receive. And no time during that experiment or any time during subsequent experiments did he receive radio signals back on the antenna system and the radio receivers attached to it that was used in the transmission. But what he did get and what David Sarita got were reception of transmissions on a handheld radio, which is made by the Chinese. Its brand name is Baofeng. Uh, it's kind of the handheld portable ham radio choice of a whole bunch of hams all over the planet. It apparently is the best technology. Uh, you can either transmit about eight watts or you can receive. You can do one or the other or you can do both. Uh, you need a license to transmit. Uh, but receiving, obviously, it's like any other radio, you just listen. And what David did was to listen and record those signals, and he'll describe how he does this momentarily. And Blanchett did the same thing, um, and at widely separated points, two points that night on the evening of December 4th on planet Earth, those radios went, were alive not just with the sound of music, but with the sound of actual, specific, coded radio return signals initiated within minutes of our sending a test transmission to Oumuamua. And obviously, because they came in much quicker than the radio time delay between us and Oumuamua, that is one of the reasons why uh, we're all kind of in agreement that whatever we're getting on the radios, it's not actually a radio transmission. It's not electromagnetic radiation. Something else is triggering the speaker. Uh, think of it as a kind of a hyperdimensional uh, tractor beam, which vibrates the speaker, which in turn, because speakers are surrounded by magnets, generates in the radio an electromagnetic uh, in induction. So that's why you can actually plug cables into the radio and and feed it into a computer and record this uh, on a computer but it's not really radio it's something obviously that is traveling many 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 times faster than the stadial speed of light so what could it be and much more important who are we talking to well over the next several weeks ending uh uh, a couple weeks ago on February 20th for the time being, we have been upping our game, expanding our experimental envelope, and we introduced a whole new factor to the ongoing experiment. Because when we decided on one of those weekends not to send the signals to Oumuamua, but instead, at my suggestion, we sent the same signals to the moon, one of the interesting things that we got back was a coded series of numbers that instantly led us to a very phenomenal and unique place here on planet Earth, i.e. Stonehenge. So then 
we thought, John Womack and I, and a couple other people thought, well, wait a minute. What if we were to take one of these handheld radios and within the environs of the most ancient known astronomical observatory built on Earth and built to track, among other things, the phases and cycles of the moon, which is why I think our moon transmission got Stonehenge in the conversation, we said to ourselves, well, what if we were to transmit to our same unknown receivers, our audience out there, our mysterious people who are obviously listening and will respond if we send them information, what if we use Stonehenge as a kind of a ground plane or a location to do the next phase of the experiment. And so several weeks later, uh, on February 4th, we sent our intrepid away team um, agent, our, uh, our explorer uh, extraordinaire, Maria Wheatley, who we will introduce uh, shortly uh, in the morning in the conversation. And we sent her into Stonehenge, and it turned out to be during the height of an extraordinary British hurricane in the middle of the winter with winds topping 120 miles an hour in some sections of the island. And I guess it was 80 miles an hour around Stonehenge when she was able to, um, uh, on a very sleety and rainy afternoon, manage to stand there in the center of the monument and send and receive another set of coded signals. Well, we fast forward the film now, and we've done this now twice because we decided that we would try it one more time. Maria did. She is definitely an intrepid explorer. And um, this time, because of this bizarre weather, which has persisted, she was unable. They had closed Stonehenge down. So on the afternoon of the 20th, she was unable to get into the monument. But fortunately, when Robin and I were in Guatemala measuring uh, uh, the uh, sacred sites there, we discovered, particularly around Chichen Itza, that if you are within a few miles of one of these ancient sacred sites, um, you can uh, pick up information, you can see measurable physical instrumentation respond, you can record the results. Uh, I did this with the Accutron system. So it was on that basis, on that theory, that I said to Maria, well, if you get within you know, a mile or two of the monument, and you start recording and you start transmitting, um, we should get very interesting data. And that is exactly what occurred, as you were going to hear. So before I bring on our panelists tonight, I want to go through a couple of very important things. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, if you are a uh, new listener, I was on Coast to Coast the other night, and I presume we have a lot of people from the Coast audience who are kind of curious as to What's going on over here at the other side of midnight? Well, if you uh, go to the website, click on or you, you type in or you, um, you know, input the other side of midnight.com. That will take you to our URL, our homepage. Take, click on tonight's banner, which says rather um, succinctly what we're doing. Open hailing frequencies, continuing Stonehenge ET transmissions, new responses. Click on that then that will take you to the guest page right under the guest page you will see fast links to items with my name 
John, David, Thomas, and Maria. Click on my name. That will take you down to the uh, section of the uh, page Radio with Pictures where I have a couple of news items at the top. Those are links to the ongoing uh, progress in the unveiling and commissioning of the, all the instrumentation of the Webb Space Telescope, which is successfully proceeding to its operational phase somewhere in July of this year. Those first two links take you to the NASA site. The first is a blog uh, describing the latest uh, commissioning results. The second is where is the telescope? Gives you a kind of a uh, overview of the instruments and the temperatures and physically where it is around the L2 point and all that. Item number three. Now this is very important because as you're going to hear later on in the morning, one of the things that has happened from these succeeding transmissions, certainly from Maria's first efforts in Stonehenge on the 4th of February, is that we got messages which when uh, David decoded them, uh, gave us a number that at the, you know, except to, except to David, it was a number that kind of hung there in space with no real connective glue. It was 20.6 was the number. And David said immediately, oh, that's the Royal Cubit that he's figured out from separate research over many years. But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I like multiple evidence, multiple lines of evidence. So I was kind of looking around for something more than that. And about two weeks later, we had the second shoe drop. Because as you may know, we're going to talk about this in some level um, later on in the morning. Um, about two weeks after February 4th, the, the um, um, e event that kind of rocked the world uh, took over, and that was this extraordinary event in the South Pacific called the Tonga Explosion. We're not quite sure what it was, but it appears to have been some kind of major event that uh, erupted in an unprecedented fashion, equal to tens of megatons of uh, explosive capacity, and it shot a cloud of material up over 34 miles. Well, when we get back into the conversation in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to go through why this is important, because now on the transmissions that we recorded from Maria's experiments in Stonehenge on the 20th, David believes we got another heads up for something having to do with Belarus and Ukraine. And the reason that's important is because this was recorded four days before uh, Russia, uh, under the aegis of uh, Vladimir Putin, invaded Ukraine. So one of the important questions of the morning is, is whoever we're talking to somehow out of time? Are they literally able to see the future, relay events in the future, straddle different timelines? Are they able to cross time? Are we talking to hyper-dimensional beings that literally live outside or away from our three-dimensional time? Because now twice, certainly the first time with the Tonga explosion, and now potentially with Ukraine and the beginning of this extraordinarily tragic war, it's 
looking, it's appearing as if we're getting advanced information beyond time, beyond space, beyond any kind of uh, natural proclivity for this kind of information to be, uh, you know, basically available. So is it in fact something coming to us from some other dimension as part of our ongoing effort to communicate beyond the earth, beyond time, beyond our current reality? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Let me return. We'll try for the rest of this morning to bring you some potential answers to that crucial set of questions. We shall return. approach to it has been, of course, from this academic scientific side to try to show that from that point of view that even in the, in the depths of the, of the data that they're presenting, they don't have a case. They've misrepresented things. They've distorted things in the public representations. And of course, I'm not alone in having come to that conclusion. Number one, there are an increased number of deaths for 2020. But number two, these are not caused by COVID-19. They're caused by the biological and psychological effects of the lockdowns themselves. Because when you lock people down, when you wreck an economy, you get an increase in heart disease and cancers. You get an increase in what is called death of despair. Oh, you get suicides, you get drug addiction going up and overdoses killing people. And all of these things put together by my estimate in my research paper, shows that as many as 600,000 people died in 2020 from just these things. Deaths by despair and the effects of the lockdowns and the forced masking. This is Dr. James DeMeo, and I'm speaking to you from the other side of the news. Your program, I must say, compliments you. You're doing a great job in assisting to get 
around these barriers of censorship and erasure that the mainstream media is doing. Uh, so it's very important, and I congratulate you for the work you're doing. I'm an invited guest on the other side of the news, and I found it to be a very enlightening and helpful and wonderful experience being interviewed by three intelligent people. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night to March 5th of uh, 2022 here on the other side of midnight in the land of enchantment. Uh, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to introduce our panelists for the evening. Uh, we have many important guests, some of whom have uh, been in- intrepid explorers like Maria. Um, others are actually working on uh, um, the analysis of, of what we have Uh, discovered what we have recorded what we have received and we're in the process of trying to figure out what in fact it all means starting with who are we talking to so without further ado let me introduce uh, uh, my uh, guest for the evening Um, let me stop this okay I'm doing kind of real-time radio here so uh, pardon me folks okay um Our first guest is, of course, Maria Wheatley. Maria is a second-generation dowser who was taught taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomance. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. She's also an accomplished author of several books on sacred sites and dowsing, and you can read the entire bio there on the website. Um, John Womack. Uh, began leaving his body in the fall of 1965, answering psychic distress calls from people and spirits. He uh, cut his Samaritan teeth on cosmic books, comic books rather, and cartoons such as Space Ghost, Superman, Batman, etc., etc. In school, he grew accustomed to being the smartest kid in the class, and of course the most bullied, excelling in geometry, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, physics, and chemistry. Um, He is a a graduate of high school with a double major in math and science and a minor in English literature. With um, his current background, he is uh, uh, is a a premier videographer. He does video editing. He does sound profiling, um, spectral uh, analysis, and... um, he is actually currently the uh, host and executive producer uh, of a show called the OBE Show, the Out of Body Experience, um, and it's available on Paraflix, Roku, Amazon, Fire, Apple TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, you can see his entire bio there on the other side of midnight on the guest page. 
David Sarita was born in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, August 21, 1961. Um, he is now uh, a very accomplished expert in sacred geometry, sacred frequencies. He has produced and scored music for meditation, frequencies for tuning consciousness. He and his wife uh, had a meditation practice and consciousness course series on audio and video called Quantum Regenesis. And uh, I, I kind of roped him into this because it turns out that an awful lot of the messaging seems to fall within his bailiwick and with his area of professional experience. He also designs and makes harmonic field transmitters. And I think we're going to have him describe what a harmonic field transmitter is. Um, Thomas Mathers, a.k.a. James Tiege, is a Grammy-nominated musician and a fervent futurist with keen interest in space and technology, global politics, meditation, metaphysics, sacred frequencies and geometry, ancient sculptures, and exopolitics. Over the last 20 years, James has traveled to over 50 countries, sharing his music and ideas around the world with an honest, logical, and adventurous passion for the truth. He has visited many of the sacred ancient sites on multiple continents and has become a well-informed and proud generalist, bridging concepts, ideas, and theories across many disciplines and areas of research, extending from the physics of reality into what we're all trying to figure out tonight, more of the unknown. And last but not least, my dear friend and colleague, Ron Gerbrun, a proudly uncredentialed polymath with a deep interest in the study of archaeology, especially Martian archaeology. Um, throughout, he actually attended both uh, Stanford and Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, simultaneously before he gave up on academia to constraining and left to travel on many continents overseas. And throughout all that time, he focused his core attention on the metrology of our paleo history, particularly that on other planets, especially uh, looking into the implications of all the ruins that for the last 50 years, uh, NASA has been quietly discovering and not telling us about on Mars. So without further ado, welcome everyone to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Hi, David. Incredible presentation you're leading with so meticulous, such incredibly fine details that I really appreciate. Well, thank you. We have a lot of new people who are listening or obviously saying to themselves, what in the world are they talking about? <laughs> so, by the way, I, I, I made one mistake. The messaging that we sent on the Christmas weekend with Jimmy's antenna was the messaging that contained the codes of Tonga. Maria's took place on the 4th of February from Stonehenge, her first foray there, and the message of Tonga itself actually exploded on January 15th. So I pardon everyone for leading them down a blind canyon. I'm, I'm doing this all from memory, not, not from notes. And there's been so much going on. It's like those old TV programs where they said, follow the bouncing ball. The problem is that we have an entire, you know, uh, coterie of tennis players, all bouncing balls all over the court simultaneously. And following any one ball at any one time is just a bit difficult. So before we get into anything, 
I want to introduce Maria. Maria, are you with us? Yes. Hi, there Richard. you are. Okay, this is our intrepid, what should we call you? We should think of a name because archaeologist is so kind of banal. You know, she's kind of like a singular member of the Enterprise Away team that we send into Stonehenge now twice to to do something and see if we can open hailing frequencies. And boy, have we ever. So what I'd like you to do is to walk us through everything that happened on the morning and afternoon of the 20th as you attempted to transmit for the second time from the center of Stonehenge. Yes, well, on the 20th, like you said in the introduction, Richard, the, the weather was very inclement and it, there was very high, strong winds. And also, in one of the uh, pictures that I sent in, I've shown how the Salisbury Plain looked. Stonehenge is on the edge of the Salisbury Plain and it was on high alert. So red flags were flying everywhere, which means you can't turn at a particular angle if you see a red flag. Well, 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 so well, was, wait, wait, wait. When you say red flags, in other words, there are British military uh, MOD, you know, Ministry of Defense installations all over the Salisbury Plain, and they've kind of crowded out Stonehenge, which sits kind of in a corner. And you, if, if there's some kind of an alert or tests or operations from some of these military installations, they literally kind of guide you around, and sometimes you can't even get in. Is that correct? That, that's correct. So if you imagine that surrounding Stonehenge, 360 degrees, there are military establishments north, south, east, west, everywhere, uh, including our largest nuclear biological center on Porton Down. So that's the, the stance around it. But we must remember that the Salisbury Plain and Stonehenge itself is the largest spiritual and megalithic, megalithic capital in the British Isles. On the Salisbury Plain alone, there's 2,000 monuments just on that area alone, 26 miles by 26 miles. So it's absolutely enormous, the, 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 uh, the archaeology and the unusual burials there, to say the least. So I managed to get into an area in between two military establishments, One's called Lark Hill, and the other one's called Rolleston. And I was uh, parked just up the, uh, the, the lane on the edge of the Salisbury Plain by Rolleston. And that's also close to a Neolithic site dating back about 6,000 years ago called Robin Hood's Ball. And Robin Hood's Ball is a causeway enclosure, which is a bit like a henge monument. That's a ditch and a bank, but with gaps in it. And that's 6,000 years old. And that the red flag saying you can't turn right was flying right by that place. So I, that was my first uh, transmission. And I'm now about sort of a, a one and a half miles away from Stonehenge. That was the first uh, transmission, which, uh, which I managed to uh, put out. Uh, but then the military police asked me to move on. So uh, after the transmission, I then had to drive closer to Stonehenge and up a trackway, which is literally parallel to the monument, and the only trackway left that the general public can get near Stonehenge, and English Heritage want to close that off. 
Mm. So we're, we're hoping very much that does not get closed off at all. So I managed to get very close to Stonehenge itself and uh, did another transmission from there as well. And all the time I was recording on another device uh, so that uh, we could have the, have the recordings. But when I got to, to Stonehenge, it was very strange because you used to see a lot of people at Stonehenge at, at the weekend. And it was, you know, nobody was there apart from a few security guards. And it had a, a kind of very peaceful uh energy about it so it stonehenge felt quite different because normally it's a very powerful place that can literally take you somewhere give you a download it's it's a high high frequency place and it seemed to be quite calm on that day compared to to other days and i've been visiting visiting the monument for nearly 30 years so i know stonehenge you know very very well would you say this was maybe attributable to the lack of tourists that, uh, yes, I think that could be one part of it, but Stonehenge itself, you know, acts as Stonehenge with or with, without people, and it seemed to be, sometimes it goes into like high frequency mode, then it can drop down a little bit, as, as most stone circles and, and monuments do, that they have their own cycles within cycles. So they're responding to the background changes in our model of the hyperdimensional physics. Yes, uh, I think that they do very much so. So when we bring Thomas on, I'm going to have him compare your uh, recordings from this this effort on the 20th to your early uh, transmission recordings on the 4th because your being more distant uh, seemed to really help in terms of being able to detect signals as opposed to a kind of an enormous rush of almost overwhelming energies, and uh, when when Tom comes on, I will I will have him uh, uh, describe that. So it was it was windy, very very windy. You're in your car. You don't even you're not even able to get outside the car, right, to do all this. No, because the wind was, I mean, it was horrendous. In fact, nobody would go with me. My friends said, we're not going out in that that wind, Maria. The trees were coming down. So, I mean, to get there and back was really something. I mean, I asked uh, a couple of uh, guys I know, and they said, we're staying in. You're crazy. <laughs> well, we kind of know that, but that's what makes you so lovable because <laughs> you're crazy like a fox. I mean, boy, talk about intrepid. Um, okay, so let me move over to David because um, what I find really interesting is we've got three separate analysts who are looking at this data through three separate lenses and they don't talk to each other before they get their results and then they talk to each other and compare notes and we post uh, as much as we can on the, on the site if it's a fit within the you know time frame of the program and obviously this is why we're going to be doing this in two parts part one tonight and part two tomorrow night because we have a lot of detail to talk about but what's so interesting from your responses david is that you told me earlier in the week and when you had a chance to look, and I should also say we had other people with their radio, same model radio, wired into recorders or, you know, being recorded on smartphones so that when Maria transmitted from Stonehenge, we would see if this ancient 
sacred site network all over the planet, those places that we could cover uh, would respond with some kind of a resonance. In other words, whether we would get signals. And then we had some people like myself who I don't think I'm near a sacred site. I'm about 90 miles from Chaco Canyon, but there's a caveat because I'm only uh, maybe four, four or five miles from the Sandia Peaks. And up there, there appear to be some very ancient uh, geometric structures that actually look as if they had been made by some very ancient now totally vanished civilization many, many, many years ago. And when we get to John's research, we're going to talk about uh, another area on the North American continent where something similar appears to have taken place. And so I, I can't really say categorically that I'm not within the field of an ancient solid state amplifying technology, i.e. a sacred site made of stone, you know, created by, you know, a long vanished culture. And that's not helping me amplify and record what I'm getting on the uh, radio here. But being that as it may, we've got David, uh, who is in uh, Eastern British Columbia. Uh, we've got me down here in the land of enchantment, not far from um, um, the Sandias. Uh, we've got, we're going to have them on the show tomorrow night. Dennis Stone was recording at America's Stonehenge. And then a, a new member of our team, uh, a, a longtime friend of Maria's, who goes by the handle Ra, and he will describe to us how we got that nickname. He was recording at the site of an ancient balanced rock in upper New York State, and he got some very interesting results. Um, Keith was recording, Keith Morgan, who was with us. Uh, I forgot to introduce him at the top of the show because he's with us every show. He's our uh, uh, IT and computer expert and signals guy because he's worked with audio and radio for decades when he worked with ABC News and Ted Koppel. He recorded on his radio in Crofton, Maryland, which is many miles from downtown Washington, D.C., and the active, incredibly modern uh, hyperdimensional structure known as the Washington Monument. He recorded uh, during um, uh, Maria's explorations separately there outside of D.C., and has sent those to the analysts. So hopefully we'll be able to report on his results either tomorrow or probably next week, because this is an ongoing deepening exercise. And we're certainly hoping uh, among our listening audience, if there are people out there with cryptographic backgrounds, with signal analysis backgrounds, with uh, people who write code, who um, develop algorithms that can look through a whole bunch of transmissions and look for commonalities and patterns we would appreciate your input absolutely um starting you know tomorrow morning because we need more people with more creative abilities to focus on some extraordinary responses and as um as uh uh you know the what's his name Clint Eastwood said in Dirty Harry a man has got to know his limitations well our limit are funding and expertise and we need more of both so if you go to the other side of midnight and you want to donate something to this ongoing effort it would be very appreciated so let me now turn to David because David I want you to describe 
your mode of analysis and then some of the really, to me, hot-button things you got from your first cut looking at Maria's transmissions as she recorded them uh, right outside the monument uh, two Sundays ago. So, Maria, what was your uh, transmission frequency, or did you use 432 and 144.1 on this on this on the 20th of february uh four three two okay so something incredible has happened on my radio ever since you transmitted my radio it's i've had this radio for nine months and and eight or nine months and it has never stopped transmitting at 432 since you transmitted in fact i'll turn it on right now and you'll this is 432 And it's constant. And inside of that apparent squelch are numbers. And I'm going to kind of go backwards here because the the invasion of of Ukraine um, by Russia was February 24th. It's a miracle that you were transmitting four days before. And what happened on the 26th of February, I I sent this message out to you, Maria, Keith, and, and Richard. I keep getting this number on my frequency meter, 1697.62, which happens to be the square root of the square of two royal cubits. And, and, and again, two royal cubits is found in over 16 places in the Great Pyramid. And I thought, why do they keep pointing me to the Great Pyramid, to the Great Pyramid? What does the Great Pyramid have to do with Stonehenge? Now, my new data from your from the analysis of your frequencies, Maria, there's one section of the recording where I've got my meter in front of in front of the recording, and I keep seeing so David, David, hang on, hang on. For people who are new to this, you've got to start from square one. How are you analyzing the signals? Speed okay, the way I analyze the signals, you go to the other side of midnight.com. And scroll down to David's items. Or you can click on David under fast links. Okay. So let me just show you an example. And and I want you to go to item two. And this is so shocking. Click on item two. This is a new breakthrough in in our analysis method. And the the when you click on item two. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. Oh, my God, David. The... But why did I keep getting – so the number on the bottom left, 29.9799, it, it, it was solid on Maria – when I was playing her frequencies, it, I've never seen my meter do this. It stayed there for a solid 10 or 15 seconds, whereas normally the numbers are jumping around all over the place. So they're flickering past and you have to video record them and then play it frame by frame to catch these numbers. Exactly what I'm doing. So I take my video camera on my iPad in front of my phone, which is running Frequency Meter Pro accurate to two decimals, and I'm putting my my Frequency Meter in front of my speakers playing back Maria's recording. Now, the fact that I got the Great Pyramid again and again and again, and I said, why is it that I keep getting the Great Pyramid? And I realized. No, wait, wait, wait. You, you, you made a leap. You got to connect with people that may not see the graph. Not everybody is on a computer or on a phone that can look okay, at this. Okay, so what shows up on my meter 
are the numbers for the north latitude of the Great Pyramid. Now, I've seen these numbers before, and and they they are the same as the speed of light in metric in kilometers per second. All you have to do is move your decimal over because the number you're seeing, the decimal is is not in the correct position. That's but they're the same numbers. So it's noted that when you go onto Google Earth, you can do this right now, and you you switch your degrees, minutes, and seconds to digital, 10 base, and the location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt to a T is 29.9799 is the north face of the Great Pyramid precisely. 29.9799 degrees north latitude. Is, is the exact north latitude of the Great Pyramid. Notice that the Great Pyramids, I want you to see it in a completely different way. And this is the insight that came to me. Think of the eye of Ra and the eye of Horus. Think of the Great Pyramid. Literally, the Great Seal of the United States on the back of the $1 bill <laughs> is, is the eye above the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Now, think of it as an electronic eye because it's pointing straight into Kiev. And, and and the entire conflict, like it's reading the whole thing. Well, hang on. We, we, we made a leap here. Because if you compare the decimal latitude of the Great Pyramid, 29.9799 degrees, instead of reading, you know, seconds and minutes of arc, yep, you, yep. you basically yep. take it as a, as a decimal, 29.9799. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you look at David's inset photo on the Google map right beside it. And that number that hung out for several seconds, 10, 15, 20 seconds, 2997.99. Obviously, the frequency was telling you, screaming at you, the Great Pyramid. Yeah, so now think of the way radar works. So if I want to take a radar reading of how far a jet is from my radar dish because radar travels at the speed of light and it bounces back it'll tell me how far away it is notice the image on the right meter reading from maria's data which follows the reading on the left is the exact distance in kilometers between the great pyramid and the zapfar fariza nuclear power plant (laughs) what Nineteen hundred and six. I did this on Google Earth, so I got right in there, and I, I, I on Google Earth, I, I typed in the Zafir Fariza nuclear power plant, and then I put my marker there and dragged myself back to the apex of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, and it is exact. Wow. So what that? And of course, this is before. This is the, four days before Putin has entered the country. But four days before he entered the country, again, it almost And weeks like, before, you know, it's, uh, what, two weeks, give or take, before he actually had troops enter the grounds of, of, of that nuclear plant a couple nights ago. Yeah, right. So I'm seeing the Great Pyramid a whole other way now because I found another number, but I can't give this number out because I got another number in Maria's data – and if I add it to the location of the Great Pyramid, it takes me somewhere else in the battlefield, and I won't give this location out. And the fact that I got two, and I'm not even through all her numbers yet. Um, in early wait, a minute, wait, hang on, 
you lost me. Why won't why won't you give this number out? Because it's too secure. It, it has to do with a very sensitive military operation. I'm not going to give it out. Oh, okay. All, All I right. can tell you is, okay, let's go back to this. Now go to my item one. Okay. Click on item one. Now this is taking, these are numbers that if you look at the meter reading in the middle, you're going to see the Zephyr Frazia nuclear power plant in the little red icon. And, and you're going to see these are Latin longs in two different readings, 47.4665 and 34.4923 is the square root of the numbers you see on my meter readings coming out of Maria's Stonehenge response. So 225307, the square root is 4746. So those Latin longs put me where my white dot is. And what I'm, hype, I'm, what I'm saying is that is probably the location prior to the attack of the nuclear power plant where Putin set up his troops to uh, get ready to invade. Well, if I remember the video and where the tracer shells were coming from, they were coming from the southwest, like from your location. Right, right. So the they, they would have moved to, from this. They would have had an encampment. Guys, we loop out a break. Okay, okay. I'm, 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 I'm. Okay. <laughs> Gosh. Okay, let's do the break, and then, and then I'll continue when we get back. This Excellent. Is Excellent. This is absolutely mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. You know, it's kind of like the only, the only thing you can say. So, <laughs> as as we're as we're, you know, recurringly looking at these messages, we're looking at two weeks' warning on Tonga. We'll talk about that in some detail in a few minutes. And now we're looking at about two weeks' warning on the Russian invasion of this major nuclear plant and a four-day warning on the invasion of Ukraine. Who is talking to us out of time and trying to give us a heads-up about events which are going to change the world? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. 
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, March 5th, 2022. As you can tell, the reason that a lot of us are so captivated by the responses we're getting is because the responses are literally off the edge of the paper. If you put a list of items, 1 to 10, that you'd expect from an attempted ET transmission and reception experiment, you would not expect reception weeks ahead of time that would predict in the numbers two major catalytic events on planet Earth within literally weeks. And we have the data, and the data is real. If we can understand why they're sending this to us, what we can do about it, and who we're talking to. Okay, David, please continue. Okay, so let's go back to my item one, because previously to my new discovery, which is the seeing the Great Pyramid as the eye, the all-seeing eye, and think of each slope so the north slope of the great pyramid the north face which is where the entrance is is facing straight up if i go straight straight up i just pass pass right through the right of kiev and then if i go on the east face or the west face or the south face of the pyramid think of it as a kind of photosensitive diode um, transmitter receiver because it, it makes no sense to me how precise this data is so my previous method of decryption of numbers was taking square roots and cube roots and and, you know just basic forms of encryption uh, on the numbers appearing on my frequency meter in response to the chirping or or even what appears to be background static coming in on the radios so so what what really amazed me again is that when I turned my radio on here after Maria's second transmission, I got locations all over Ukraine, and it was just Ukraine, and it was it was also the 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 border of some of the neighboring countries. But I've been watching my radio every night give me Latin longs all over Ukraine. But then when you asked me, Richard, to just analyze Maria's data. I was so shocked first <laughs> to see this little white spot show up where where you can imagine, you know, his troops coming in from the south, from the Black Sea, maybe parking their ships and then moving their way up and, and establishing a base camp where my white dot is. But my item two is so precise, if you understand how radar returns work at the speed of white, that the 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 distance between the north face of the Great Pyramid and the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Remember, this is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And believe me, I know nuclear power plants inside out because I worked for 
major nuclear physicists and nuclear scientists on nuclear fusion and nuclear engineering. I knew Glenn Seaborg, who chaired the Atomic Energy Commission under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And we, we also knew MIT um, scientists um, who were nuclear power plant engineers. So I know how these things work. And for the, first of all, they're supposed to be able to survive the impact of the 747 without even phasing the concrete dome structure of the plant. But we don't know if they could withstand a 7,000-mile-an-hour Russian Zircon missile, which Putin so far has not used. But, but all that aside, this data is coming in um, four days before the first day of the invasion. So th that would mean how did the pyramid – I'm starting to believe that where we're getting our data from is actually the pyramid. And the reason I believe that is it keeps sending me – pyramid numbers like when it sent me this week well, well, well when you say from the pyramid see i would look at the pyramid as a transducer that it was built to be a communications device between 3d reality and a hyperdimensional reality it's a huge all the exactly. pyramids are huge machines and i've measured other pyramids and stonehenge and other sacred sites with the acutron and i know <clears throat> that these energies are changing the physical constants like there is this bleed through between a higher dimensional reality and 3d reality so i would not say the pyramid is doing it i would say the pyramid is a focal point relay for whatever intelligence is talking to us which i think given the fact that we're looking at things out of time and anticipating by weeks in terrestrial metrology it's, it's literally out of time and trying to give us a heads up for critical events that are going to change the history of the planet. Nothing less. Well, if you look at like the description, the Eye of Ra is, is a being in ancient Egyptian mythology that functions as a feminine counterpart to the sun god Ra and a violent force that subdues its enemies. The Eye is an extension of Ra's power. And then you go into to the idea of th – th this is in, in a really good description of this. I actually found this on Wikipedia – that one of the eyes of Horus, which is similar to the eye of Ra. So Ra is the chief sun god in Egyptian mythology, right? So Horus is the son of, of Isis. So Horus is – And Osiris. His left eye is equated to the moon, and his right eye is equated with the sun. And, of course, Stonehenge is a lunar calendar, mm. and would, would, would that mean the pyramid is a solar um, you know, uh, reflector? So how, is, how am I getting data like this? Why, like on the 26th of, of February, I got the square of two royal cubits multiple times on my radio here, plus I was getting – locations all over the battlefield in the Ukraine. I mean, right, I mean, I've, I've got data, I've got numbers that take me right into the middle of Kiev, I mean, the city, right? So that means, why aren't I getting numbers all over the freaking planet? Why is it all week? I can turn my radio on and put my meter in front of it and get Latin longs all over this field, this theater of war. And that means it's like the, the, the pyramid is acting as the eye of Horus or the eye of Ra, and it's collecting data. And you're right. 
a higher dimensional perspective would be the sun and or the moon itself if it's an intelligentsia that is that is a living system but somehow it's using that as a reflective focal point because when i look on my item two this number 1976.37 shows up after the 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 29.9799 number and what prompted me to do this was i'm saying why do they keep giving me pyramid numbers and i just decided to measure the distance between the power plant and the pyramid and <laughs> i did this multiple times because i couldn't believe it when i got my number and my number is accurate to 99.99% by the way. So and and I don't know how accurate this measuring tool. So if you go on Google Earth, it's very accurate. It's certainly There's a measuring tool. It's certainly so, within two significant figures. Right. So I can zoom right in on the power plant and there's multiple domes on that power plant. It, it's got like I mean, I don't have it right in front of me zoomed in, but I can tell you it, it it is one of the biggest nuclear power plants. I mean, I've been inside of nuclear power plants. I I mean, I know how they work. And well, it they, supplies uh, about a quarter of Ukraine's total energy. Now, yeah, in, so when when, when like hang on, hang on. When, when when Georgia joined us in the third hour, you know, we're going to spend the first two hours looking at data and looking at decoding and all that. Third hour we're going to talk about interpretation. What the hell is going on? And what can it mean in the big, big picture? And I've done some thinking about Putin and Ukrainian nuclear reactors, NATO and all that. I think this is why this is a focal point of intense interest, including whomever we're talking to. Yeah, so for people who don't know in your audience, I'm I'm Ukrainian. Sarita just means Wednesday in 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 ukrainian my my grandparents on my father's side are, are both pure ukrainians and and probably ukrainian jews who turned to catholics to hide from the 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 jewish persecution under Stalin. and my on my mother's side i'm english and french and irish and all that stuff so i i know a lot about the ukraine through through family but we don't have to go into the politics so much is i'm really blown away by this richard because i like i said i got a second location in Maria's data, this isn't in my separate data on my radio. In Maria's data, there's another distance between the pyramid and another very profound target in this theater of war. And that, and that target needs to be protected, in my opinion. I could tell you off air, Richard, what it is, but it showed up on the, on the frequency meter as well. So that means I have a whole new set of data analysis to do which is looking at my numbers and measuring points off the Great Pyramid to an event or something. Well, the next thing in your research I would expect in the next week you'll be able to do is look at the location of Ukraine's other uh, power nuclear power plants because nuclear energy supplies about half of Ukraine's total uh, electrical uh, uh, energy budget and see if they fall out of the data the way this one did yeah that's a that's a great idea and i know it's a it's a i mean okay i want to i want to come back to some other decoding but let i'd like to go to john because i want to broaden our focus uh john you and i've discussed about other examples of this kind of communication which frankly in in the uh major media uh has been popularized 
as how you would talk to aliens or how you would talk to someone who's not, as, as Michael Hill said, not from here? Yes. Yeah, we have close encounters. You like to use that a lot. And um, Maria's Stonehenge recording reminded me of close encounters uh, toward the end there. The, the humans are playing, and then the aliens go, wah, wah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had just another um, psychic, psychic synchronicity or metaphysical message, whatever you want to call it. All humans get these. You just have to be open to them. Um, I started working uh, on Balanced Rock last summer after Keith showed some images, but uh, I've got about 200 hours into this and collected 30 hours of footage from people visiting the park. There are several features on Earth called Balanced Rocks because there's a lot of rocks that are balanced. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is is the one in Utah, and the one that Ra, uh, Ralph, uh, Maria's friend, is going to talk about tomorrow night for New York State. And it's not exactly balanced. It's sitting on three other rocks, kind of like a tripod. And how it got there and who put it there and is it a natural erosional event? I mean, these are all questions I'm going to ask Rod tomorrow night. But you're talking about the ones in uh, Utah. In the Utah Swell, yes. It's right next to Canyonland State Park, which is where the monolith appeared a couple of years ago. So this is in a small area. And I've been visiting the west since i was a boy and i always had the same feeling that keith did that there there's all these monuments along the colorado river and i actually set my book um old souls is set up in montana where i say that the martians escaped mars and they landed in montana long ago and uh so this was a couple of weeks i get up from a nap and i i sit down put on the tv i don't watch much tv but it comes on to uh the comet tv and it's uh, the, uh a scene from a movie i saw like 20 years ago at the theater mission to mars and there oh the, the one the, the one the one by de palma by de palma brian de palma the brother of the physicist the hyperdimensional physicist that i was good friends with bruce de palma who is uh, no longer with us unfortunately yeah, so it was just another – I watched that scene. I'm like, geez, that's just what we're doing. And they show the, the alien mother, and uh, like, that goes right with my hypothesis that Utah – it's not erosion. There's nothing balanced. This was all type 2 civilization from Mars. There's several races of Martians depicted in all these monuments. Uh, the monuments go on for hundreds of square miles, and then all up the – the uh, Rocky Mountains up into Canada. So this is a, a huge deal. But I'm just focusing right now on the Utah swell. But um, Richard, I didn't know about, you said there was a backstory to Brian De Palma. And I, I don't know anything about that. Do you want well, to? Well, um, Brian De Palma apparently uh, convinced NASA to be a technical uh, institutional advisor to his movie mission to Mars. And the idea was kind of put out there. The the trailer, whatever is that this is going to be a hyper realistic movie about NASA's plans to go to Mars, 
land on Mars, land habitats, send the crew to rendezvous with the habitats, do research and all that. And instead, it turns out that they have to go and rescue a previous mission, which has disappeared under very bizarre circumstances. So NASA was heavily involved in the, uh, in the uh, you know, planning and development and shooting of a lot of mission to Mars. And then, like on the eve of the premiere, uh, the Palma leaves the United States, because normally the way these things work is the um, uh, producer and director do a whole dog and pony show on television. They visit all the networks. They visit, you know, uh, Hollywood magazines and, you know, uh, columnists. And they basically showcase the movie. Uh, you know, the stars do the same thing. And it's basically publicity that the studio needs to get audiences into the seats in the theaters, right? Just before the movie's going to premiere, De Palma splits for France and does not come back for years. And when NASA is asked about formally its participation in the shooting of the film, NASA pretends, according to their official public relations spokespersons, that they had zero involvement with the film, even though it's on record that they were heavily involved in helping him with all kinds of shooting and technologies and plans and rocket ship designs and all that. So nobody wanted to discuss Brian De Palma's movie, Mission to Mars. Why? because the central focus of the mission is a visit to Sidonia and going into the face on Mars and discovering that it's a monument to an ancient Martian race that after a catastrophe on Mars came to Earth, seeded the Earth with organisms, including the what would develop into the human race. And, and that's what the... Utah Swell seems to be a monument to some huge event with all of these animals and tons of monuments to these Martians. I believe they are Martians. And it, I think that's what we're looking at. Which is why this bizarre monolith, you know, a couple of years ago, suddenly appearing, being very hyperdimensional, being tetrahedral, being, you know, a two-dimensional version of a 3D tetrahedron located in a canyon with all kinds of extraordinary images, three-dimensional images all over the walls that uh, Keith, you know, first noticed and pointed out to me. And then I took the monument seriously and figured out the numbers. And again, it was, it was basically an ET message in a three-dimensional artifact on the surface of this planet just like Sidonia is a mathematical message on the surface of Mars surrounding a face-like epigee, which is over a mile uh, in, in length and uh, 1,500 feet high. So there appears to be this connection between mathematics and communication, and why are we all here, and are we in fact talking to the descendants of our own ancient progenitors or ancestors and are we talking not just between places in 3D in the solar system and beyond, but are we talking to somewhere beyond time and space 
in a hyper dimension that can see the future and is wanting to somehow help us avoid what might be coming. Yeah, well put. And as you can see in my image four, there are many alignments, uh, solar alignments. I imagine there are probably lunar alignments too, but I, I can't figure out how to use Google Earth yet to, to chart this, the lunar alignments. But there are obvious solar alignments, um, especially with uh, Delicate Arch, which is just north of Balanced Rock here. Um, very Indiana Jones kind of the sun coming up and shining and hitting the thing and it reflects down on it and the thing opens. I mean, it's, it's all, it's Indiana Jones squared. Okay. Moving on to our current research, which is the signals themselves. Where did you dive in? I dove in because after listening to these signals for a while, you begin to, um, isolate the sounds and I isolated five or six sounds and they're, they seem to be coming from the radio. The computer beeps, a klaxon sample I have there, metronome, projector. This is just names I'm applying to these sounds. That, now, are um, these in Maria's recordings? Good question. Um, Maria's recordings confirmed the sounds, but they were much louder and the quiet tones were much quieter the first thing i noticed about no 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 no, no. i'm asking what what your source data is where are you the here? source data is from your recording oh december oh well, that's 4th, really important okay december 25th i mean I, there's a lot of hours and so you start hearing these different elements and uh you know like the other week I, we had frequency mode and you know um so we're hearing these radio sounds, and I, I think it would behoove us to contact, like I could contact the radio manufacturer, say, hey, we're getting this. And Keith, because last night I was talking to Keith uh, on a Skype call, and I, I noticed there's a two-tone, two tones playing in the background that keep repeating, and she says, and it just keeps repeating. And I said, Keith, what is that sound? And um, I had my speakers up a bit loud. It's kind of irritating after a while. And, and he says that's from uh, his USB headset, and he hears that in the background. I, I think it would be cool if he contacted that manufacturer, and then we could compare their responses and just apply it to our analysis to see, is it the chirps coming in that is activating the electronics in the radio and causing these sounds to play, or is it something in the radio? So I just want to either eliminate or confirm, or you know, why are we getting these radio sounds that kind of muddy up what we're doing? You know, we don't need those sounds. We want to hear the chirps. So that's where I am. Um, and then when I got Maria's recording, first thing I noticed was noise it's just super quiet it's like silent during the pauses whereas your recordings Richard you know there's this background hiss and I noticed the attack um, for tomorrow night I have some attack and decay comparisons which is the sound leading up to the chirp and the chirp fading out is the decay and you on your recordings, Richard. You have a specific, you know. There's a pattern in the attack and decay of the chirps, and then you look at Maria's recording, and 
aside from being like, turned up to 11, you know, this one goes up to 11. Um, <laughs> the attack and decay is microseconds. It's like one thousandths of a second. It's so short compared to the long attack and decay of your recordings, Richard. Hers, it's just so quick and loud, like, boom! It's, you know, they're so incredibly amplified through Stonehenge. So, um, very interesting. Those were the first kind of things I noticed. Okay, we are, we are at the bottom of the hour. Uh, pause there, because when we come back, we're going to go to Thomas Mathers, and Thomas has got some really fascinating new data and i guarantee you it's going to blow your mind i mean all of this blows my mind because there were people before we started all this that said eh, you won't get anything and you know you won't be able to interpret it and what to me is important is this is convergent we're looking at data which is converging and we'll explain what we mean by that when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're discussing our ongoing experiments in ET communication. And I use that term broadly because anything uh, beyond the Earth's reference frame, even if it is hyperdimensional, would by, be by definition extraterrestrial. We shall return. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night. Grading in the next half hour into Sunday morning here on the land, uh, on the other side of midnight in the land of enchantment. Um, I want to turn now to Thomas Mathers. Thomas has a background as a uh, an award-winning uh, producer. He has led bands. He has traveled the world. He has experienced the technologies of ancient sacred sites and the uh, non-technological human experience of being in these places and reson- resonating with them as a kind of a human antenna system. And he's got some pretty interesting results. So uh, without further ado, Thomas, it's your turn in the circle. Hello. Good evening um, or good morning. <laughs> good evening. Um yeah, so I thought um, sort of an interesting way to sort of start this before I jump into kind of the items would be to uh, actually explain to people what was sent out. Um, so as we, as the project's been progressing and as we've been putting out the subsequent transmissions, um, you know, we've been taking some of the information that we're receiving and then, you know, kind of you know, trying to modify and sort of evolve the signal that's going out. Um, so this last, uh, this last round, uh, we've, um, so the, the, the Stonehenge transmissions basically have been uh, some different types of uh, uh, sound frequencies, um, um, uh, tones and, and things um, using sine waves. Um, you know, and the, the reasoning and basis behind this was um, this is a way for us to be able to, in a very simple way, be able to send pretty uh, accurate numbers, uh, mathematical ratios, um, and encode it into the, into the signal that's going out. Um, and initially, we so sent the, on two frequencies, 144.1 megahertz and 432, and we decided on this, this session, the second Stonehenge foray, uh, to limit it basically to 432. Yeah, so I think I, I think there seemed to just kind of be a little bit more um, energy and response around the 432 this time around, um, and certainly in the in, in, certainly in the data that we've received back, that seems to have been a good uh, good decision. But back to the signal that's gone out. Uh, the signal that Maria broadcasted contained sort of uh, ten. Uh, actually, this it was nine uh, nine core elements here. Um, so the first element was basically shooting out the seven sacred frequencies. Um, this is related to the different uh, frequencies uh, connected to different chakras, and then that led into. Uh, Stonehenge coordinates and we repeated that three times and then following that was the golden ratio and then following that was pi which keep that kind of in mind because that is is something that comes back to us 
Uh, number five is the E constant. Uh, number six is the square root of three. Uh, the seventh component is the pyramid of Giza coordinates, uh, which is repeated three times uh, with two different octaves in the tone. Uh, and then the number eight was we incorporated this time around uh, Mars's diameter and pi. So again, we're looking at pi. And, and then finally, uh, the Morse code alphabet. And the reason behind that is, um, uh, so in, in the last couple of weeks, we've taken some of these rhythmic, um, I guess, components to the transmissions that we've received. And uh, not necessarily thinking that there's going to be some super accurate structure in terms of, of the, us receiving Morse code, but it was really sort of done initially as an attempt to be able to analyze the sound data in a different way and see if we're finding any kind of repeating pattern. Um, the, general, the general sort of thing that we've been able to see here is that the, these, the, the radios on these frequencies, when they're kind of listening, normally tend to sort of vary sort of behavior and uh, the, the, their behavior varies. Um, but a lot of the time they tend to be very quiet and then sort of during the lead ups and then after a, uh, a transmission goes out, this is where the activity really starts kind of getting more energetic, um, which is, you know, definitely indicative that we're tapping into something now. Um, you know, one of the big takeaways from the experiment, um, that we've been able to see right now is that there definitely is a correlation to the type of behavior of the radios when these transmissions are going out. And this does not seem to be necessarily affected by uh, geography. Um, there definitely seems to be a, uh, an effect on the amplitude of the transmission that's coming back um, the resolution, which I'll kind of get to when we when I start going through some of the uh, the items, um, this is kind of my interpretation, like the resolution of the transmission that's coming back. Um, but the behavior of the radios has been shown to to be consistent, so we're triggering some type of an event. Um, no matter what ends up happening or any other takeaways from from this, as far as I'm concerned, that that's you know it's a success. Um, for us in terms of the experiment. So uh, going into the items, I mean, what I wanted to do, and I think uh, I'm just scrolling over to uh, my items here. So, so I've got a couple of pictures that people can go to. And again, uh, for listener, listeners out there, you can go to the other side of midnight.com uh, and go to tonight's show. And um, if you, if you scroll down to, uh, to the hyperlink uh, for Thomas's items, you'll be able to follow along and actually see some of the images here. Well, you can also click on Fast Links, which is under the banner oh, yes. on the guest page that will take you directly to Thomas's section. Exactly. So, so there was um, this time around. I guess where, where do we begin here? When we compare what we received uh, and what Maria was was recording from the first Stonehenge uh, transmission attempt, uh, where there seemed to have been some interesting kind of behavior in terms of battery drainage, um, 
you know, what we did, what we were able to analyze, okay, in the audio, the one um, sort of characteristic that we could, um, I guess, sort of give, give to it was that it was very intense. Um, the first on his transmission, which she was, you know, right in the heart of it, uh, what we were receiving was just like, I mean, it sounded like being in like a wind tunnel or something. It was very bizarre. There was kind of like a, almost a helicopter noise, you know, swirling, big swirling, but everything was extremely energetic. Um, it was very unusual. Um, and uh, because of some of the technical uh, issues related to the batteries, um, you know, we didn't have a substantial amount of time to be able to to analyze um, specifically from Maria's uh, recording equipment. Um, this time around, um, because she was a little bit ge- geographically further away from the site. Yeah, hang on. Maria, how far were you from Stonehenge at the closest point this time? I was about... Uh when I got close to Stonehenge, probably about 250 feet away from Stonehenge, 200, 250. Excellent. Okay. The second so now, Yeah. So, so, I mean, the interesting thing is that you can hear the, this swirling, the helicopter, helicopter noise. I mean, it's this, this kind of the, the signal uh, that came back. Is I mean, it almost sounds like you're describing, and I wish we could play it, for people, ah. I call we're it the projector to... sound. That's my projector. Yeah. So, so. Oh, so hang on. Well, let's let, let, let's let's go listen because it's radio, folks. Yeah. Ah. Yes. You know, I've been yeah, so exactly. frustrated because so, uh, remember, yeah. this is like you know nobody compares notes until we actually come together. So there is some overlap here. Let me get to John's and let me go down. Well, no, 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 no. If you to, if you go to the I, my uh, line item number five, there's number a link to five. SoundCloud. Yeah. Okay. And that's a playlist, and we've got a whole bunch of different um, different things that we can play uh, play from in here. Um, these relate back to some of the links in here. Actually, relate back to some of the items that we're going over. Um, so you so want me to click on it and play what background? What the what this well, vortex? No, yes. There's this is a playlist. Um, so there's 18 items in there. We don't have to play them all. Um, they're all labeled, so I can kind of give you a little bit of a guidance as to what to play. Um, so, but if you go to the SoundCloud link, yeah, I'm I'm there. I'm just looking for the background. This this wishing vortex you described. Well, that's going to be that's going to be in all of this stuff because this was kind of a common feature um, in Maria's recordings. Um, Again, this is kind of like the the richness in what we're getting back and what we're analyzing from Maria's compared to um, the stuff that is coming into your radio and and David's radio and some of the other people. Um, I mean, what we're seeing is that these these, uh, geographical locations in terms of being in proximity of different energetic ley lines or or the sacred sites themselves, you know, do definitely seem to be you know, as we were, I, I think, initially kind of looking to test um, if they would act as like kind of like a, a natural signal amplifier, both on the signal going. So out. which one should I play that reflects the background you're describing? Um, I mean, you can start by playing the so maybe not number one, because that was that was a Morse. Um, you can try playing item number two. All right. Here's an item number two. It says Maria Rhythmic. Okay, at yes. the 12-minute mark. Oh, actually, 
Um, let me just yeah, maybe play number number eleven. Going to eleven. Okay. Weird pulse repeated. Okay, I was kind of looking at that myself. Okay, let's hope this works. This is what the raw data sounds like. Wow, that is not radio as I've ever heard it. No. I call them stone beats, Richard. Stone beats yeah. and stone tones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is... The, the, the thing is, is you weren't banging like some... on those monoliths, were you, Maria? No. <laughs> no, no you didn't get closer see. than 200 feet. Okay. So go no, ahead. But I was, but just one moment. I was opposite. Exactly. I positioned myself along that track to be opposite the vortex where Richard uh, got his spike. Oh, the, oh, the Akatron readings back in yeah. 2011. That's yeah. right. So I positioned so, myself to be in opposition to that. Yeah, this, so, Richard, well, this, this almost sounds mechanical. I think that's a timing device inside the radio. Ah, uh, no. No? No, it would be up in the... You wouldn't hear it. Okay, so if you just press pause for a second, Richard. Okay. I mean, just to, just explain to people. So we had um, in this attempt, um, a there wasn't as as much kind of intensity, so we were able to sort of see a lot more texture in in this kind of chaotic noise. Okay. Now, in my experience, you know, I'm not really hearing too much that would be kind of similar to traditional like radio static. Um, stuff that would be kind of more related to kind of like a pink or white noise uh, type of sound. Um, we had about a hundred and I think it was about 140 minutes uh, worth of recordings. And so my approach with this in, in kind of decoding it or just attempting to get my head wrapped around this was quite literally to sit down and listen to this from start to finish. So I listened to 240 Kind of like Jody Foster on the, on the hood of the Pontiac. Yeah. Exactly. Now, you know, took a listen to this uh, straight in one sitting. And now the thing is, is that like, as you kind of get into this, um, you know, I, I kind of joked with, with you guys after the fact, I was sort of saying, like, you know, I hope this is safe. You know, I don't want, didn't want to sort of get something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, down, downloaded. And my, my wife certainly, uh, you know, had a bit of a chuckle when she kind of sat, saw me just kind of sitting there listening, listening to hours of, of what she would interpret as static. But Here's the thing. There seems to be kind of different motifs and there's a, there's a definite palette. And what I mean by resolution is that there's just a lot more texture to the signals that's, that's coming in here um, than what we're getting from sort of a radio that's just positioned somewhere that's further away from an energetic, energetic line. So we're, we're definitely seeing and hearing um, that, you know, the, in the, in the signal this like lushness and and as i kind of got into this um 
you know, these are with trained ears. I mean, for people out there, I've been producing music since the 90s. Um, I've got extremely trained um, ears for for basically dissecting mixed audio. Um, you know, it's it's a skill that you need to kind of fine-tune um, to become a good uh, music producer. So I can listen to pretty much any type of music, any type of sound, and I can kind of, you know, in like instead of visually dissecting it, I'm audio based dissecting it and can kind of focus my attention onto different areas, uh, which is obviously important for the, for the mixing process when you're producing, uh, producing music. So as this was going on, I'm, I'm, you know, and this was just so much more rich than anything we've had up until this point. This is by far just some of the most uh, amazing um, sort of evidence and, and data that we've had to work with. I mean, it was really, you know, once I got into this, it was really quite impressive. Now, you know, what John was talking about in terms of this rhythmic structure, because, you know, after we both had sort of independently analyzed this, um, we were able to, uh, we were able to kind of reconnect and sort of compare some notes. And we both agreed that there was just some points here that like, you know, it's, there was almost like a real rhythmic structure that, again, with my with my um, skilled and trained ears, didn't feel um, it, it did feel kind of organic and somewhat natural, um, not so much uh, mechanical, um, but they were it was very musical, um, you know. Where after you're listening to this. And then all of a sudden, like, there's a cohesiveness that comes together and you're like, wow, like, this is like actually kind of like coming together. And then the thing is, is that like, you'll sort of have these like energetic bursts that come in for like 20 minutes or 18 minutes. And then you'll just kind of have like a general sort of silence for a little bit. It's not like this is super continuous all the way through. Um, The behavior is really, really, really strange. I mean, it's just not. Guys, we're blowing through the break again. Uh, no, I have 10 minutes of. Oh, unless my computer is, see, when, when Uh, Maria visited Stonehenge Marie on the first time on the fourth, you were in the center of the monument in the center of the vortex. If you can think of it as a hurricane centered invisibly on those circular circumcircular stones and your, your watch, you said lost 15 minutes of time in the in the yes. hour or so that you were there yes that's right i mean uh, the the inside the holiest of holies by the altar stone which uh, is the near center the most powerful place at stonehenge as in any stone circle is the near center never the geometric that's where the ancients would put the central megalithic features and it was there that uh, was the most powerful for sure Wow. Okay, so by being farther away, that overwhelming background that, Thomas, you've been describing, although we're still hearing it in what uh, I guess John's calling the projector sound, it is lower, so the other modulations on top of that were more distinct. It wasn't drowned out in the background. Well, this is what's the, and this is so. So we're sort of, you know, building up to to to. Well, let's play some more samples because kind of people love to hear this. Yeah, so, so pick exactly. one. So I think, so I think because we're talking about this rhythmic structure. Yeah. Um, I think if you did, uh, did we play number two already? No, we played we play eleven. We played eleven. Yeah. So let's play number two. Right, this let's... is kind of this this rhythmic kind of feeling okay. that comes in. That's twelve minute mark on her recording. Got okay. it. 
Yeah. That's it? Yeah. I've, these are highlighted sort okay, of... Okay, let me again. do it again. See, I hear structure... I hear with my untrained ear, even though I was a musician on Columbia Records, I hear two levels of structure. I hear the background, which is not random noise. There's a structure in that background. Then I hear a foreground. It's not pings. It's not musical. It's more like a staccato. Like someone's hitting a, a coke. Yeah, so now I, if I wrote a coconut. You know, yeah, so if you go to if if you go to number four now, um, again, this is kind of a similar type of thing. This kind of rhythmic structure. This is what uh-huh. I kind of labeled it as, like ping pong. Again, like John and I are kind of just you know randomly sort of naming these sounds as to kind of what we can kind of relate them to. But there is a definitive palette. Like it's not like there's a million different types of, of noises that we're pulling up. Okay. There seems to be kind of a couple of different categories. All right, here is number over. four, which you describe as ping pong. Okay. Yeah, and this is between the 29th and 30th minute mark within her recording. Okay. Sounds like something from the Caribbean. I have this for tomorrow night. There's a beat in there. The drum beat. Yeah, Yeah, there's a beat. It sounds what almost like a hyperdimensional calypso. Holy cow, guys. So if you go to number five, now this is, so this is my kind of interpretation. If you can just pause it before we play it. Okay. So this is again kind of like, so, so this last one that we played was at the 29 to 30th minute mark. This is going from the, this is about the, uh, the 30, 30 minute, 20 second uh, mark. Okay. So you're going to hear the pink, that kind of ping pong, that rhythmic calypso, the hyperdimensional calypso. And then the distortion that you're kind of hearing, to me, I kind of interpret this as like, it does sound like a kind of a voice, okay? Like very, very distorted. But I've ruled out, like I can see in the recording when Maria has connected the radio, like when it's actually, she's put it into the jack and you can see by the mono recording that this is coming straight from, from the radio. So there's no, there's no, nothing else polluting the digital recording into her digital recorder. Mm. Um, and after we've now kind of from the first attempt, because of just the intensity of her being very close to stone um, inside of uh, Stonehenge, you know, we had her reduce the recording volume. So we had zero distortion. There's zero distortion on this. This is, this is being recorded as you would want it at a good, at a good volume, you know, properly connected. 
Um, so, so you can play this one. So you'll continue to hear this ping pong voice, and then I kind of call it like the data voice. It's just kind of how I interpreted the sound. Um, okay, so here, is, here, number five. here is number five. Sounds like an old Geiger counter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just it's really it's 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 really quite strange. And then, so to continue this kind of little section before, I guess because we're getting close to yeah, we we've got about four minutes here. Yeah. So if we go into number six, this is now kind of shows you this is kind of the ping pong sound that goes into the background and then to quiet. And then this is just kind of how this this signal kind of evolves and and sort of shifts and changes. It's really uh, it's fascinating, really. Okay, frankly. here's number but, six. Anyway, yeah. really hear the projector sounds in the background yeah uh, very very faintly like it's it's not that's the sound that was very 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 up front when maria was closer so i mean we're it's very strange so i mean i think yeah say what hold it there we're trying to figure out a mystery a cosmic mystery we're listening to signals recorded by maria uh, wheatley 200 and some feet from Stonehenge on Sunday afternoon, February 20th, 2022. And there's all kinds of coding from the numbers to the frequencies to the repetition to the hyperdimensional conga, calypso, who are we in communication with? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall all return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. I'm sorry, Saturday night into Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. We're listening to Thomas Mather's decodings, frequency decodings, of Maria's recordings in the environs within around 250 feet of Stonehenge during an incredibly inclement uh, British hurricane a couple weeks ago in the afternoon of the 20th. Unlike her first foray into the center of the storm on the 4th, the background, although present, this, this whirling, almost vortex-sounding um, background, you can hear other modulations in front. You can hear pulses. You can hear frequency spacing. You can hear that there is intelligence communicating something. And as David has already shown us, these same recordings are spitting out frequencies like crazy, and those frequencies are incredibly meaningful, literally connecting, among other things, uh, the impending invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and then subsequently in the same recordings, the connection between the Great Pyramid in Egypt and the Ukrainian nuclear reactor on the Denipar River that was bombarded and assaulted and then taken over by the Russians just uh, two nights ago. So, Thomas, pick it up, please. So, again, like as I'm going through and I'm listening to this, um, you start getting acquainted with uh, some of this palette. Um, you sort of familiarize yourself with some of these you know, projector sounds, helicopter-type sounds, the whirling, swooshing. This is where things got weird. Um, because, you know, <laughs> really? Been, Everything up to now has been totally boringly normal, yeah. right? Just this well, afternoon this is, at yeah. Starbucks. Okay. So, so, you know, as I'm listening to it, um, you know, what we're looking for are – you know, it's similar to how David is, is kind of working with his radios and, and analyzing his frequencies. We're analyzing the digital data and we're looking for frequency spikes, things that are going to kind of stand out. So, you know, it's not like looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, once you kind of get accustomed to the sounds that you're hearing, <clears throat> you'll be able to hear when there's a tone. 
um, as long as it's within the the human audio um, uh, frequency range. Um, so, you know, generally between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz, um, which was actually that's, that frequency sweep was something that we sent out the first transmission out of, of Stonehenge. That was a part of the signal. Um, so anyways, the, the first time that I heard an isolated tone uh, was um, at the 40-minute mark, 40-minute uh, and 20-second mark uh, of Maria's recording. And um, there was, I mean, I definitely could hear the tone. Um, and then when I put it, <clears throat> when I put a uh, spectral, uh, spectrum analyzer to actually identify where the peak is, you can clearly see it. So if you, uh, let me just see if I have it in the items. Um, for this particular one, I don't. Mm. Um, I've got it for the kind of the main, well, I've got it for the most important one. This is just the first just just keep in mind that it's not like we're getting, you know, a hundred different tones coming in. I mean, we're talking about probably like four clearly identifiable tones over the course of 100, 140 minutes of recordings. So this is not a common occurrence throughout this. This is why it stood out. So this was the first time that my attention kind of got peaked and I was like, hmm, What's that? And then I stopped and sort of analyzed it. So that's um, the link number seven on the SoundCloud, uh, which is um, the, the first frequency peak at 4.95 kilohertz. Um, and again, that's at the 40-minute, 20-second mark. Okay, so that's what this sounds like, all right. So yeah. this, and then I'll turn that up, and there's a lot of stuff to do here. Huh. So you can hear it in the background like it's a, uh, not you know, really. That, I got to be honest. I don't yeah. hear it. If let's, you, let me if try you it again. Look at it in, uh, yeah. it. <laughs> what I hear is okay. the background uh, sounds like a machine gun. And then I hear yeah. the, the, uh, the pings. Or the the, mm -hmm. the kind of Congo drum thingy. Let me listen again. Mm -hmm. I don't hear a tone. I separated yep. the tones, uh, which I have for tomorrow night's show, Richard, so you'll be able to hear them better. Yeah. So the, the important thing, so again, this was just, it was the first time that I kind of noticed something a little bit different than what we had been hearing for the first 40 minutes. Now, oddly enough, this is where things get for me the weirdest, is that like about just after this, just after this section, I could have sworn that I heard a voice. And it was very quick, mm. but it was, and that's, and when it happened, like literally the hairs stood up on my arms and then I went back and um, because we were sort of delayed uh, with the show, I was able to really kind of go back in. I have ruled everything out. So I don't know if this is like, you know, some type of an electronic voice phenomenon. I don't know what it is. Um, it's very short sort of syllable. Um, Again, I, I kind of, when I heard this the first time, you know, I, I went and grabbed my wife and I said, hey, listen to this, you know, do you hear anything in it? 
and she clearly said, yeah, I hear a voice in the background. Um, so this is item eight, nine, ten. So number eight, this is now, this is the, I've repeated the section four times. Okay, so you'll hear a little bit of a break between it so that you can hear it and look for the, look for the, the voice. The voice is kind of sitting in the background a little bit. Um, the first one is, this is the unprocessed. So this is the raw uh, sound that comes through. See, we um, don't hear voices a- normally on any of these transmissions. The only voices we heard we dismissed a couple of weeks ago as triggers in the radio of a preset program. Which this is, is definitely not the. This is definitely not any. It's not in the radio. Of, it, it's well, not in the out, radio. Richard, yeah. uh, for the fourth of February, I heard what I thought. I when I heard it, I thought EVP. This is on February fourth, Maria's recording. I didn't say it to anyone on the team. I wanted to keep this independent and see if anybody else noticed it. I contacted someone uh, on from Paraflex who works with EVPs to see what they thought of it. And then on the 20th, I found three more. And then this past Tuesday, Tom and I got together on the phone. And when he said he he heard an EVP, I was like, bingo. Mm. Okay. Let's, let's, let's play it here. Okay. Ready? Boy, you guys have good ears. I don't hear mm-hmm. a thing. I heard yeah. it, Thomas. I heard it. It's very yeah, faint, but I heard it. Yeah. Let me, so if, let me let I've me try it now, again. Let me try it again. No, but but just to make it easier for people, like I just want people to hear the original one. Well, we okay. just did that. So, so. yes. So if you go to number nine, this is processed. So number all I've nine? done is I've just get yeah, number nine. <laughs> I'm um, thinking of Lily Tomlin. Number nine. Okay. Here's number nine. nine. Okay, ready? Here goes. And I further process process it in number 10. So what you should be looking for is in the back there, you can hear something that sounds like ray or gray, and and it sounds like, doesn't sound like a woman's voice. It's... To me, sounded I, I don't know. I mean, but I mean now knowing that, play number ten, and you'll hear it in the background. It's okay, late, here's so number ten played yeah. four times. Mm-hmm. Guys, I gotta tell so, you. Oh yeah, you can hear that. I don't hear a thing. Yeah, I hear so the machine going, gun. Right. Hang on, hang on, don't pass over that. Because I have average ears, you know, if I'm not hearing it, how many in the audience are hearing it? Is, are we sure it's really on the recording or is it triggering something in you, Thomas, and you, John, that's already in your own minds and it's acting as a trigger as opposed to it's in the radio? No, you no, said Stonehenge. Yeah, no, no, Sorry, just yeah, like, yeah, like one thing that I want to kind of say here, like, you know, I have extremely good, I've got extremely good ears when it comes to stuff like this. And I can tell you that after I... Yeah, and I'm listening and I, on $300 headphones that Art made me spend that much money mm-hmm. to get. 
And I'm telling you, no, when I, I when I play it, I don't hear. Like any it almost voices. sounds like great. It almost like great, great, great. Like it's like it's in anyways, the background, Richard. You can hear it. It's yeah. definitely there. Yeah. Let me try it yeah. again. I'm so, gl- and, David, I'm glad you're hearing it because. Okay, oh, I, thought, I thought yeah, I, I might have heard. Maria, are you hearing it? Yes, I can hear it. Oh, yeah, I think it's great or great. It's in between the no- the noisy bit, as it's it were. Very, it's, it's very fleeting. short. It's very fleeting. And My cat can it. hear it, Richard. Come on. <laughs> Your cat? <laughs> oh, God. Well, I have educated mice. You have an educated cat. Okay. <laughs> Let's try it one more time with feeling. Okay, I am, with repetition, I'm hearing, great, 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 but it's way under the noise. I know, but here's the thing. I went back after hearing that, okay, and and the tone of the voice. God, you have amazing ears to hear that. I went back, I went back, I went back, and I listened to the entire recording again. Georgia can hear it. Ah, I I feel like the slow kid in class. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I went back knowing to, what to look for to see if I could hear that coming through the transmission at any other point in the 140 minutes. Right. Nothing like that happens again. It's the only part in 140 minutes. It's just that little part. But that well, there's is three other EVPs I made note of, but not none of them say great. They're different sounds. Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is, I mean, it is, it's a short, you know, unisyllable, you know, syllable word. I mean, I wish it was a message, but I mean, it's definite, it's definitely a voice. And Richard, remember, you said yourself that Stonehenge is, you know, opens up sort of a doorway or lifts the veil between the two worlds. So this, these could be EVPs. So well, that's, uh, that's exactly why, Georgia, Georgia, say hello to everybody, okay? Hello, everybody. Hi, Georgia. <laughs> hello. How come everybody can hear this more easily than I can? This is weird. Maybe I'm losing we, my hearing. <laughs> you know, what, yeah, it re- what, what it reminded me of are those technologies where you wear headphones and one sound is played in the right ear and one is in the left ear. Right. They entrain to something else. It's sort of like the, the floor noise and the background noise are kind of doing that. I'm actually going to do a binaural comparison for next weekend, Georgia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that like, you know, so with in comparing what we're receiving to some type of a binaural um, beat um, or that type of a binaural effect, the binaural effect requires a stereo signal. And we're recording mono. This is what's coming into the radio is 100% a mono signal. So, you know, I understand what you're saying that like, you know, it could potentially be some overlap, but this is not some type of like an interference between uh, like a foreground and, and, and background noise. Like this is definitely a unique. It's um, like somebody sound. whispering in a hurricane. Yeah. It's, Why didn't it's they want to make themselves unique. more obvious? 
Now hey, this is it. interesting, you guys. Ray in Hebrew means little lamb. Oh, that's as, as a phonetic word, Ray is in ancient Hebrew means little lamb. Yeah, and the okay. the the uh, hi Ron, the uh, the uh, Egyptian sun god is it Ray or Ra? Oh, either, wow! Oh either God. one. Well, then Ray either. could relate to the Great Pyramid, to the anchor Taking point answer. of David's frequency uh, analysis, as a redundant oh. second level. Oh my God, Richard! And you know, I just while we've been on the air. I found in Maria's data precise Great Pyramid to Chernobyl. Now remember, that was the first place that Putin took over. That's and it's exact, Richard. I mean in kilometers. I'm going to do the graphic for tomorrow night, and I also got Pyramid to Kiev, just south of the city, also in Maria's data. So the odds of this new technique. That the pyramid is like the eye of Ra or Ray, and it's 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 giving me distances and kilometers mm. from the pyramid to the targets. And I mean, John, a, and I've John, got four targets now. And John, by metonymy, the Great Pyramid, ancient Egyptian civilization, connections to Mars. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as we kind of, you know, again, like, you know, as I'm continuing to listen to this, I mean, the voice definitely was something that kind of spooked me. I mean, it was exciting to finally hear something. I'm of, spooked of, I mean, if you heard the, the damn what, thing. What's the phonetic, proper phonetic for the, the Egyptian god Ra? This, I mean, it, well, maybe it's Re. Re. Well, we don't know. Yeah. There's nobody around that speaks ancient Egyptian. <laughs> No, there is some controversy about it, though, and that's why it would, they finally settled it like last year that you can call it, you can use either pronunciation. Ra or Ray. By the way, yeah. one of our <clears throat> experimenters... Oh, no, I'm looking, he's right. I'm, it's, in, it's in the encyclopedia.com. Also, Ray, R-E. One of our experimenters tomorrow night, one of our investigators who Whoa. was at the Balanced Rock um, in uh, northern New York State, his his nickname is Ra or Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think this is referring to him. No, I, no. I don't think. Um, you now, can't say Ra Charles, but you can say, yeah, if it's by itself, you can just say Ray. Yeah. I like so, Ra better. Okay, we are, we are 19 minutes after the hour. Time is moving at warp speed. We need to move on, Thomas. Let's go. Listen to the next yep. weird stuff. But this is the yeah. So this you know as again like as this is kind of going on, um, you know I hear a another tone, and this tone it was very was a lot more clear, and it kind of came in and out. It sort of fades in. Um, so I've done that item number twelve. You'll hear the tone kind of fade in. I repeated that three times. Okay. And then it comes back in for a longer period. So you can play number thirteen right after. And this is actually connected to the picture that's in my uh, linked, uh, linked files, which is item number four, which is a picture of the spectrogla- uh, spectrograph, and you see where the peak is. So play it first, and then we'll sort of unveil what the, what the frequency ended up being. Okay, here it is, number 12, <clears throat> in your items, repeated three times. Oh, that's a clear tone. 
Yes, that is very clear. And then if you go into number 13, this is 13. the tone that extends longer. Yeah. Let me go to 13, going to 13. Uh, sound like Spock on the Enterprise. Let me do that again. That was cool. So these are the first real tones we've ever received. Yeah. There's and a ton that, of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it. There, there seems to be, again, like it's not like there's, you know, like a thousand different uh, tones. I mean, that's definitely one of the clearer ones. The crazy thing is, is that that is pi. You're I mean, kidding. It's like, no, it's like, you know, if you take a look at where it's sitting on the spectrograph, it's 99. I mean, again, like the, the uh, analyzer that I'm using, um, you know, is kind of, I, I kind of zoomed in as far as I can kind of go. But it's like, you know, I would say like 99.9% close to being the value of pi, which is you extremely mean, You mean 3,140 or, or 314? No, that's three, uh, it's, uh, 314. Hertz. Yeah. Uh, sorry, 3.14 kilohertz. Kilohertz, right. Let me, so that's let, me, let me play it again. This is pretty amazing. Yeah, so that's a high this, tone. This is pi. Pi. So just as like... Wow. So, and then just to to kind of give a comparison, so there's another um, another section in. So, and if you play item number five, this is a different tone. So, this is 558 hertz. I don't know necessarily what the significance of that that number is. I mean, it's just it's something that was also picked out. This is at the five. 82 minute. Yeah, number of 15 on the SoundCloud links, and that's this is. Uh, oh no, no, you, you said number five. Oh, sorry, number 15. All right, let me bring 15 yep. up. Okay, here we are. 558 hertz. Sounds like now the crazy, uh, yeah, the crazy thing about this exactly. The crazy thing is, is that this actually sort of shifts down, like it slowly kind of goes down, which we didn't do. I mean, that's not a part of any of the of the signal that we put out. So, I mean, this is something very strange. So Number it's six, what it's 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 it's, just, it's hang on, it's Doppler shifting, it's like a like a like a train like a sweep, yeah. going away. But it's super, super mild. Like, it's maybe going down 10 hertz, you know, to go from, like, 558. I mean, that's – like, if you play number 16 just to help people at home to kind of uh, – to look for what we're listening to Every here. Help number help Yeah, so number 16 I actually is just a pure tone, a 558 hertz pure tone okay. that I created with a tone generator. All right, let me play it. Yeah. That's what I heard. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you go to the, the, again, back to 15 to hear it sort of in context. Here we are.
starts there. It continues. It's continuing under that background. I couldn't hear the other one, but I can hear this one. So then finally kind of getting through it. So again, I don't know really what the significance of 558 hertz, but again, this, that, that behavior only happens kind of like, you know, like once, and then it doesn't happen for the rest of the rest of the recording. You don't hear that, that frequency again anywhere. Um, and then there was another one, the other kind of, uh, you know, I guess significant uh, frequency that we found is 2.52 kilohertz which is at the 72-minute, 15-second mark of Maria's recording. Um, that's item number 17. Okay, here's 17. <laughs> so all we have to figure out is what 558 is. Well, no, two, that's a two point. That's two point five two kilohertz. So two thousand. No, I, I was talking about the previous one, and then this one. Well, this is why 558 is kind of important because, again, at 18, I, I sort of was incorrect because I'd originally said that uh, the 558 hertz um, only came in once. The 558 hertz comes in again at the 84-minute mark, and that was that was the final kind of like sound um, sound item there. Okay. Um, yeah, I hear it. It begins about one third of the way in. Yeah. There. Yeah. Oh, so I don't know what the I don't know what the significance of five fifty eight is, but I mean that's definitely kind of there. Well, we'll I mean, spend I think a week really... looking, and we'll all have the answer by next Sunday or Saturday. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so so bottom so bottom line bottom line I mean uh, in terms of some of the evidence that we've been able to get uh, I mean I wish we received you know basically plans on how to build some type of machine or something a la a la contact uh, but I mean to have been able to have picked out a voice like a clear voice and and these tones uh, which have some type of in, to me, some type of intelligence behind it, and then really just the absolute vast richness. Okay, of, let me raise a specter here. We've yeah. got for the for the for the weird voice, which you got to listen to like three or four times before you begin to. It's like so ghostly under the noise in the background. We've got Ray. Okay, great. Okay, what if it's saying gray? Well, like that in, was my like in alien grays, like a species somehow connected to humans, which is in the backdrop of UAPs and UFOs and abductions. And uh, could that be it? Well, when I played this for my wife, she was the first person because when I heard the voice, I wasn't even thinking. I was so taken aback and so shocked to have, have heard the voice because it kind of popped out of nowhere. Uh, when I played it for her and I had it looped so she kind of could listen to it like we did uh, just now, um, the first thing that she said was gray. And I was like, please don't say that because it's just like a really, you know, but, but you know, I think gray, ray, great. I, I'm leaning kind of now more towards great myself, but there's, a, there's something there. You know, that's one of those kind of ironic things I say all the time. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so we got Ray, 
great or gray. And that has really interesting implications. You want to hear more? Stick around for the next half hour. We're going to take you places that maybe maybe some of you don't want to go. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. I want to delve into the meaning of all this. Do we know enough to impart or decode or intuit a meaning? Or do we need more? A straight line from the Great Pyramid to the world's, to the e- Europe's biggest nuclear reactor invaded by the Russians two nights ago. And then a straight line from Giza to Chernobyl, which the Russians invaded a week ago. Are you discerning a pattern here? We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight, which is really now in the land of enchantment, the other side of midnight, on this Sunday morning, March 6th, 2022. And what you've been listening to for the last uh, two and a half hours plus now is transmissions from somewhere, someone, somehow, from something somewhere in or out of time because in addition to the tonal qualities a mysterious voice saying ray or great or gray we have connections between Giza and the largest nuclear reactor in Europe just invaded by the Russians and then we've got connections between Giza and Chernobyl invaded by the Russians. And I guess I want to start this half hour, this last uh, half hour, by giving a little bit of background. So let me direct you back to the other side of midnight uh, on the guest page 
I want you to click on my name. That will take you to my items in Radio with Pictures. Item three and four have to do with the invasion of uh, Chernobyl a few uh, about a week ago, and then two nights ago, the invasion of uh, the nuclear reactor uh, that they actually fired. They fired, you know, tracers. They fired artillery shells. It looked like they were trying to do something really dastardly. And yet we got this as a recording from our ET friends from somewhere or somewhen or somehow days before, excuse me, weeks in this case, before the events actually occurred. So what is going on? Okay, I want to direct you to item number five because science is projection of data that you know into the unknown that you don't know as of yet. Item number five, um, I've got a, a GO satellite image of the Tonga explosion in the Southwest Pacific at 20.6 degrees south latitude. The reason we know that the transmissions were telling us about Tonga is because they came in in the frequency meter as David was you know, recording his, uh, his modalities at 20.6. So it was obviously a prediction two weeks before during the Christmas weekend uh, radio receptions and transmissions of what was going to happen. Now, why is Tonga important? Because it was, and the estimates are all over the map. I've seen 18 megatons. I've seen over 50 megatons. It was an extraordinary explosion from the ocean floor into the mesosphere above the the stratosphere at an altitude of something like 30 plus miles, 34, five miles. Now take a look at number six. What I've done is I've still framed the GO satellite imagery so I could capture a single frame. And just as this explosion erupted from the ocean surface, it had a cubical geometry. And on the cubical geometry, there were four dark dots arrayed, as you can see by the comparison, with five black dots uh, with one in the center, four uh, with one in the center making five, that basically look like a five dice cube, a five die. And David and I went back and forth about the meaning of five. Well, it turns out that it's related mathematically to the Great Pyramid. Item number seven, this is the comparison of the satellite view of the eruption of the cube from the ocean with a side view taken by a ship that was fortunately close enough to get good video and far enough away to not be smashed flat by the stunning shock waves. And you can see literally the two-dimensional perspectives of this cube erupting at sunset from the ocean, literally at sunset at the Terminator. And then number seven, this is several minutes later as the cloud, these are all clickable by the way, if you click on them, they get much bigger. As the cloud is expanding upward into space, the inner geometry forms a series of nested cubical geometries over and over again. In fact, when I was on with uh, uh, George Nuri the other night, he looked at this image and he said, wait a minute, explosions don't form cubes. I mean, he was stunningly correct. 
because they don't. Let me tell you what does form a cube in three dimensions. A projection of energy into three dimensions from a higher dimension, from four or five or six. Because the first three-dimensional construct that you can create after a point, a line, and then a three-dimensional figure in three space are two interlocked tetrahedrons which form a cube. So someone, two weeks before this unprecedented, and it's getting tiresome saying that in the last several years, unprecedented explosive energetic event in the South Pacific at 20.6 South latitude, predicted by our ET transmissions two weeks before, someone was warning us of the projection of extraordinary energies from a higher dimension into our three-dimensional reality in the safety of an ocean where the closest island, Tonga, only had, I think, uh, a few people killed. I say only because it's like, if you're going to do this in a meaningful way, you can't move the real estate out of the way. So someone decided that the message was more important than those lives. And someone else apparently told us weeks before this was going to occur. Now, if you're part of the global deep state or the global military industrial complex, you realize in looking at this and doing a lot more analysis because you have a lot more data than we do tonight, you realize that this is a, a um, confrontation with someone controlling energies which transcend, supersede anything that any governments or private entities on the planet are supposedly capable of controlling. I keep trying to rationalize why Putin has invaded against every norm, every counterintuitive fact and figure and extrapolation, why he has invaded Ukraine. And then, in succession, taken control of two nuclear reactors, which if they were even slightly destabilized, would create the most horrific catastrophe for humankind in the 21st century because if he does it to one, he could do it to all of them and he is putting himself in position. And somewhere, somehow, in these transmissions, the importance of these sites were being flagged, again, weeks before they actually took place. So what's the backdrop? What's the meaning who is trying to tell us what about events to come, the effect on the planet, the effect on humanity, and who, in fact, might be behind the incredibly recent negative events that we see unfolding 24-7 now on national television? It's at this point I think I want to bring Georgia in because, Georgia, you've been doing some thinking about this, and you've got a potential list to the list this is only a partial list um but um 
some some of the entries on the list are probably more probable than others, but we don't want to box in the box at this point. We want to be able to think in in ways that you know may not turn may turn out to be nothing, but uh, are are a little different. Um, I've got a couple categories here. Uh, a, a couple of them will need some explanation. The first category, which you've brought up, is are we talking to family out there? And if we are talking to family, are they current uh, societies out there, or are they ancient past, perhaps coming through time in some way? Are they close, uh, perhaps uh within this planet, on bases within this planet, or are they far out there? Um, what is their agenda? Are they indifferent? Are they trying to warn us? Um, these are all questions that would relate to the category of family. Then you can talk about other dimensions. Are we talking about parallel universes? Are we talking about higher realms that humanity accesses only in that transition that we call death. Um, you know, where do EVPs come from? Uh, is it higher realms? Is it what the Hindus call the Deva kingdom, which is a parallel kingdom to consciousness? Uh, we would call it um, a kingdom of form or, or matter. Um, on the low end of that would be, for instance, the little flower fairies and nature spirits. On the higher end would be angels and archangels. Uh, that's a whole nother category. Then you've got the planetary hierarchy, the spiritual adepts and masters, um, those of the human race that have remained behind on this planet to teach and uh, instruct humanity as to its identity. And then you've got a category which I call us. And that one needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, I'll give you an example of something that happened to me when I was about nine years old. I was nine years old playing with my cousins at a friend's farm, and it was getting towards sunset. And um, uh, I decided to just go be by myself. Now, I hadn't uh, remembered this memory ever. And a few years back, um, I was doing my daily meditations. I wasn't meditating on time or anything like that. And as I was sitting in meditation, this memory popped up. Uh, it was more than a memory. It was a reenactment, really. I was my adult self in meditation, but I was also my child self experiencing this again. And as a child, I uh, extricated myself from my cousins and uh, went down to the shore of the lake. And I remember it was about sunset. I remember looking up at the sky and, and just feeling really anxious and frustrated. And I remember as a child, uh, of course, re-experiencing it now in, in my meditation, I remember as a child getting very frustrated and looking up at the sky and saying, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What does it all mean? And my adult self in meditation and re-experiencing this immediately flooded my younger self with love and support and basically 
an attitude of don't worry, everything will work out fine. And I remember as a child when that frustration reached a pitch, all of a sudden there was this peace that descended. And I realized I was the answer to my own prayer, that there was a loop that was created between myself as a child and myself as an adult giving the answer. So, Oh, so you were literally linking across yeah. the time stream and yeah. you were the one you had been waiting for. Exactly. Wow. So... And, and I also realized in meditation that if this could be done, if that kind of loop could be created in a lifetime, why not over several lifetimes? Oh, wow. So are we talking to us in the future? <laughs> oh, my God. So those are just a few categories that, you know, might involve taking a look. Okay, the floor is open. Who wants to respond? Richard, I, I should mention that um, this is common in <clears throat> in the OBE sort of world that, that I live in. And, uh, in fact, in one of my episodes, I use 3D animation to reenact a time when I, I go out of body, I get an emergency signal, I go back, and I'm in England, and it's a pirate ship, and I'm watch myself fighting these pirates and I'm almost then I die and I go up in the sky through the the tunnel and then I'm pulled into this guy's body now I'm fighting these pirates I'm like what the hell and I have to save this woman so my past life called it was so the alarm signal was stronger than any other it was like oh my god help 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 so I had to get this woman there, and my old self called, and I heard, and I went back, and I got the woman there, and once she was safe, I exited that body, and it hit the dirt, and I headed home. So, yeah, you do go back and help yourself. The corollary to that is that if all of our incarnations are going on simultaneously, there are future incarnations that have solved the very troubles that we are dealing with now and we can become receptive to our future selves that has the answer well you know that's very go ahead go ahead yeah no what i was going to say is that um you know another way to sort of look at it is that you've got basically every single kind of possibility of you know i guess within time kind of like this this idea of sort of like a multi-dimensional kind of matrix like layers upon layers and, you know, we are kind of existing within what is the most kind of like probable sort of thing at the moment. But the reality is, is that everything is to happen, has already happened, you know, and is currently happening. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, the idea of, of sort of like a zero point, um, you know, could be applied to the time as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, where, where, where and what and how you know, we're, we're sort of attempting to communicate with is, is, you know, I guess still the, the mystery, but, um, I mean, it definitely sort of seems like we're honing in to something, um, you know, the quality of the evidence that we're getting is definitely kind of ramping up from the, from the initial sort of attempts back in, uh, back in December and, um, continues to kind of, 
you know, lead us down this, this path together. This if we a- built a software, a computer software that, that follows the algorithms and the decoding methods I'm using, you could literally be live listening to a reception from a transmission and it would spit out all these possible locations on the planet. Well, the other night, David, let me interrupt because we don't have a lot of time left and I want to get back to Maria. The other night when I was on with George and I was laying out the Tonga and intimating, teasing about the Ukrainian stuff, he said to me, very matter of fact, he says, well, wouldn't it be useful if you could have decoded this, you know, two weeks before, like almost in real time before Tonga? Before, you know, and, and that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So, software, so we would is, need money to do that. This is where well, we need Project funding. We need funding. We need other expertise. We have a vast audience in 193 countries. Who knows who's listening? Thomas came to us randomly, ha ha ha, by listening, by being recommended to listen to what we're doing. And he has put his heart and soul and 110% into this and has produced amazing results. There's got to be more Thomases out there. There's got to be computer experts. There's got to be people that deal in cryptography and codes. There's got to be people who are, you know, signals processing is second nature. They can, you know, lift those voices up to where we can actually hear them more clearly. Maybe superposition or, or, or some kind of spectral filtering or whatever. In other words, we need more expertise because the reason we're doing this, I mean, the, the reason this is coming at the end of my 40 plus years of trying to get humanity to pay attention to what's around us in the solar system that's artificial, that was built by somebody, most likely our great, 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 great grandmothers, is because I think, I thought then, I think now, it's the only thing that can intercede and stop the insanity the road we are apparently on, where we're literally tonight poised as we haven't been since the Cold War on the edge of someone who has twice now threatened to use nuclear weapons in this current conflict. Richard? If I can, if I can throw one more quick thing in here, um, you're, you're uh, you know, calling for, for people with different skills. Uh, I think that perhaps uh, some road we might go down is to find a reputable, experienced remote viewer and have them target on these signals. Oh, no, that's interesting. No, no, but, but we're, we're better than that. We, we've got data that's already telling us where the signals lead, but we're decoding it after the fact and proving it mathematically to precision. Like I just got pyramid to Chernobyl while we've been sitting here tonight going through the video I recorded of Maria's, you know, data. So that means if we had all we need is a software that can read those frequencies and convert them and I could I could tell a programmer exactly how I'm doing it. And well then it may would... already exist, we just don't know about it because we don't live in that universe. And if there's someone listening who does and they say, Oh, you need such and such, we don't have to write our own code. Worst case scenario there's someone out there that could help us write the code so we could do this literally in real time and anticipate the future warning that someone is now twice, more than twice, is repeatedly giving us 
obviously to try to be helpful. Well, no, I, I'll note that I do Ooh, have that? one more location that's what? very sensitive. I'll tell you off the air what it okay, is, okay. because if I gave it okay. out, it could be damaging. Understand. Uh, who is that trying to, to... That was me. Uh, Ron. Ron. I had I, to throw a thought in here. I was thinking to myself something that I thought was too absurd to mention, uh, <laughs> which is... You're well, kidding. When you were talking... On this well, show? When you were talking about, <laughs> yeah, when you were talking about things coming from other dimensions, I'm thinking, or other planets, I'm thinking, well, along with the signal from contact, there was the one that was received that started the Andromeda strain, you know. But um, then I thought, okay, uh, what about um, somebody just messing with us from another dimension, which led me to uh, Mr. Mitzpitlick, the uh, legendary imp from the fifth dimension in the Superman series. And yes, it's pronounced a bunch of different ways. That part's not my fault. Uh, and so I said, well, okay, he appeared first in October, 1944. Well, what was going on in October, 1944, specifically world war two. Hmm. Uh, there was the, um, an attack by the Russians on something in Warsaw and one of the largest sea battles ever fought. Um, so maybe there is a connection. I would think this is more future-oriented where we are now. There may be analogies to the past. A lot of people in the last you know, week have been comparing this to 1939, et cetera, and nobody did anything, and look what happened, and now we're frozen because we can't do anything because nuclear weapons are involved and one of the participants has avidly you know warned of nuclear weapons twice redundantly and has taken over two nuclear sites in ukraine there's a trend curve there it'd be very nice if we had more more forward-looking radar as to what could happen next so we can forestall it and that may be the short-term use of what we're doing in a very practical sense if we that's get the really right help to do yeah that's what my and, fourth location is richard it, it is what could happen next and, and i'll richard, tell you it, off the air in 2010 here they are going out to investigate this monolith and back home on earth there's a confrontation between the soviet union and us yes. around costa rica yeah I mean, I think I, I think something that we should be kind of just taking into consideration here is that you know, let's kind of bringing this back to what we're like, what frequencies we're putting this out on. Um, again, I mean, we've been hoping to kind of tap into some type of an ancient kind of communication network, and you know, the the analogy that we've been doing is that you know, with these with these uh, uh, signals that we're putting out there, we're trying to tickle that like hyperdimensional. Uh, ether the 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 matrix um and and basically like you know i think these big events you know like a big energetic release like tonga or like significant sort of uh conflict you know that has the the general sort of human emotional level very very high are significant sort of impacts onto this this uh this network this matrix this hyperdimensional kind of web um, as well, right? So, you know, thinking of it kind of like a giant kind of interconnected spider web that you're sort of feeling these reverberations. Well, we so. have a great thing, and I'm going to go back, back to Maria, because Maria, and we got about two minutes, the next data point we're going to get, or data points, is from Egypt, because you're going to the Giza Plateau. 
Yes, uh, that's right. I'll be there from um, the 18th of March uh, to the 1st of April, and I'm just waiting back to hear exactly when I will be at the Great Pyramid and what time, so I can relay that to you. But but just briefly, well, um, we've heard the words grey or great or raw or, you know, but when I was at Stonehenge, what I heard come out of Stonehenge uh, was peace. That is what I heard in my head as I was looking, doing and doing the recording. So I do think there's a lot of hope uh, in what we're doing. Well, that would mean that what we're doing can somehow impact what everybody wants, which is peace. And I think we just need to get better at what we're doing, which needs we, we definitely need more, more help. So if you have an expertise, if you're an intuitive, if you're a remote viewer, if you're an electronics expert, if you're a cryptographer, if you're, you know, CIA and you get tickled by this, get hold of us. The contact information is on the website and we're going to pick up with part two tomorrow night, more decodings, more uh, reaching out for more help and maybe, just maybe, answers. And don't everybody speak at once. (laughs) Be there or be square. (laughs) Hey, you know, folks, we run to the end of our runway. So I want to thank everybody, and I'm not going to name them all because I'll forget somebody. Like I forgot Ron the other night on Coast to Coast. You know, um, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. I will remedy that the next So until tomorrow night, there we are. You are on the other side of midnight. This has been three hours of trying to decode the undecodable. One thing we do know, we're getting messages somehow ahead in time. Can we regularize that? Can we make it systematic? Can we pick it up in real time? Can we have an impact on the trends of future history in the next several weeks? Join us tomorrow night. Same time, same bat channel. And remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. See you tomorrow night.